And I'll be honest, today's passage in the sermon is on a very challenging and difficult passage. So as I prayed and prepared, and as we go through and navigate through those challenges, I just pray that you will um, be graceful, seek the Lord's leading um, as I have tried to do, and uh, you know, the, the Bible says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. So I've been asking. So um, would you just pray with me now bef- as we begin our time in the Word together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your Word and for your Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. Lord, I pray that you would show us by your Spirit the message that you have for us today. Lord, we know every word of your word is important. And so we ask that you just speak to us clearly today what you want us to hear. Help me to not be a distraction in delivering that message. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. We commit this time to you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So we're back in 1 John, for those who are tracking, I've been preaching through the book, and we're in chapter 5, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to chapter 5 of 1 John, we're going to begin in verse 6, and in verses 6 through 12 is where we're going to be today. We'll read that together in just a minute. This passage has generated a great deal of discussion Since the first century, among preachers, teachers, and students of the Bible, and as I prayed for God to reveal his meaning in this passage to me, I found myself reviewing the many different explanations of some of the elements in this passage. I found myself unable of those that I studied, and there are many others, to disagree with any of them. And the reason that I didn't disagree is because they were all supported, or they all supported the same overall message. And so the reason I share that with you is because I believe it demonstrates the amazing power of the word of God as a living and active word that to different individuals in different circumstances in different times to bring a consistent word message through all of scripture and that's the message that this passage is talking about and the message is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent as the only way to receive eternal life. So as we look at this passage and we look at the terminology that John uses, I believe he's challenging us to put on trial the claim of Jesus as the Son of God and our Savior. And so 
The message of Scripture itself is what he says to put on trial. And the results of that trial in our lives will determine our destination for eternity. And so it's important that we get the right verdict in this trial. So if you'll read with me now, 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he, was, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, as in any trial, critical information is provided through witness testimony. And before we begin examining the contents and the details of that testimony, the first thing we need to recognize is the source from this passage of that testimony. Well, if you look in verse 9, it says this, If we receive the testimony of men, which, by the way, we do every day, Hey, what time is it? It's 9 o'clock. Okay, thanks. We receive the testimony of men every time we exchange information, and we seem to do that fairly easily. It's receiving sometimes the testimony of God that can be a challenge to us. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. So the source of this testimony is God. But who is it that is providing this testimony? Who is it or what is it that is a witness and testifying to us God's message? Well, verse 6 of this passage clearly indicates that it's the Holy Spirit who is communicating, testifying. But then verse 7 and 8 go on to say this mysterious addition of the blood and the water testifying to us. And it also makes the statement that the three agree. So here's where it gets really interesting. 
As you look back in history at how this passage has been taught by church leaders, even church fathers, there's a great deal of difference. For instance, Augustine related the blood and the water in this passage to John chapter 19 and 34, where it talks about the Apostle John who was standing near the cross at the end of Jesus' crucifixion. And as with many who are crucified, soldiers would often break the legs of those on the cross so that they couldn't hold themselves up and they would collapse and ultimately suffocate because they couldn't breathe. Jesus was already dead, so instead a soldier took a spear and pierced Jesus' side and John observed that blood and water flowed from the body of Christ. Now, you may be aware and familiar that there are attempts by the medical community to explain why that happened. And once I've heard suggest that there's a condition of the heart that the heart actually breaks and there is a sack of water around the heart that forms when that happens, ultimately supporting that Jesus had a broken heart when he died. Because we can't know that for sure, but what we do know, because John records it in the Gospel of John, is that it did happen. Though we may not understand why it happened, it did happen. So Augustine believes that this reference to blood and water in John's epistle relate back to that experience that he had at the cross. Martin Luther and John Calvin tied this passage to passages in the Gospel of John chapters 4 and 6. In chapter 4 where Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and he said, I can give you living water that will quench a thirst and you will never be thirsty again. And of course he was talking about the spiritual water of a relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit that quenches that thirst that we have that can only be satisfied by a relationship with the God who created us. In chapter 6, Luther and Calvin believe that a conversation between Jesus and his disciples about the blood in relation to the Lord's table was the other reference of blood in this passage. There are other teachers, significant teachers as these others, who have referenced Jesus' words to Nicodemus. If you remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He sat on the ruling council of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and he was really wondering if Jesus was the Messiah. And so he asked to meet with Jesus, but at night. And Jesus met with him at night, and he asked Jesus the question, how do I get saved? What does, what, what does one must, what must one do to be saved? And Jesus' answer was, you must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit. So two of the three that testify here. 
Still other teachers believe and teach that the blood and the water are mentioned here together because they both occur during a human birth of which Jesus experienced a human birth. Fully God becoming fully man. He was born through human birth. And then when he died, and the same reference to the blood and water that flowed from his body on the cross. So as I prepared this message and I studied and I prayed and humbly I asked the Holy Spirit to reveal to me the truth of this passage, I settled in agreement with the church father Tertullian who taught that the water here refers to baptism. and the blood to the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. And I'll give you a few of the reasons for my beliefs, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time justifying it, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. So baptism for a believer is a representation of our cleansing of our sins and our uniting with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, leaving behind the old life and living a new life, a new spiritual life. Titus 3.5 says this about baptism. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Those works include baptism but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So in salvation, there is a cleansing, but that cleansing is not in baptism. Baptism is a representation of the decision that we've made to follow Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that does the cleansing. But Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to be cleansed. He was sinless. So why the reference to Christ's baptism? Well, at Christ's baptism, several things happened. And I believe, though he was not being cleansed, it was the beginning of his public ministry And it was also to validate the ministry of John the Baptist who had been prophesied about in the Old Testament, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, preparing the way. John the Baptist himself said that that God had spoken to him and told him that the Son of God would come and he would see the Spirit descending on him. And at that point he would know. And that's exactly what happened. Christ in his baptism also set an example for us because he later commanded in the Great Commission to the disciples to go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them. Additionally, at Christ's baptism, it was a foreshadowing of his ultimate 
death, burial, and resurrection. The water is representational of Jesus' baptism and our baptism, and the blood is signified by the blood Christ shed on the cross as that which gave atonement for our sins. It's the one sacrifice for all that removed the penalty of sin for all who choose to follow Christ, for all believers. So though I settled on this position for the significance of the water and the blood in this passage, I also concede that all the other views that I mentioned, that I studied, are consistent with the Bible and may in fact be correct and intended by the Holy Spirit when he authored that epistle through the, God, the Apostle John. Because each of these is true and agrees with the rest of Scripture and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and his divine purpose was to come to die on the cross to pay the debt for our sin so the message is the same. So if you're reading from the King James Bible, at this point you're probably wondering why I missed a key portion of Scripture in chapter 7, or excuse me, in verse 7. So to add a little further challenge to this passage, um, Pastor John's talked to us in the past about translation variations and this is one of those so the wording in verse 7 in the king james says adds this to the text for there are three that bear record in heaven the father the word and the holy ghost and these three are one well, most of you would probably agree that's a very sound-sounding passage. And it's clearly the most significant passage in Scripture about the Trinity, explaining the Father, the Word, which is Jesus. Remember at the beginning of the Gospel of John, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the word was God and later in the word became flesh and dwelt among us that word is Jesus so the father the the word or Jesus and the Holy Ghost and the three are one seems to be a very clear description of the Trinity the reason that this appears in the King James Version and not in modern translations such as the ESV or the NASB, which many of you may read from, is because the translation team at the time made a decision not to include it in the modern translations. Though the translator of the King James Version opted to include it. And there's lots of scholarly work on both sides of this issue. And I have an extensive, incredibly thoughtful 
paper that if you'd like to read, it goes into the details of why the King James included it. But John, when he talked about variances, reminded us of a couple of things. One is that as translation teams make these decisions, it doesn't change the meaning of this passage. This passage overall still communicates the same message. And whether it includes this note, which was in the margin of some manuscripts, but not in some of the oldest manuscripts, gave different teams different decisions in whether to include it or not in the words of their translation. So like John says, unless you're willing to learn the language of the original scripture, which was Greek for this passage, we have to rely on translations. And translations make different decisions, but they carry the same message. But this also illustrates the importance and value of having multiple translations and reading and comparing them because sometimes these different decisions communicate slightly different wording that may help you understand. So I'm not going to spend more time on explaining the variance between the two or the significance of the blood and the water, but I offer this to you. If you would like to meet and discuss these, like I said, I'd be happy to share with you all the resources I have, and we can have a cup of coffee and, and talk about either of those. I would enjoy doing both. But for our time today, I want to focus on the overall message of this passage because that is what I believe is critical for us, that we put this concept on trial. So now let's look at the content or the meaning of this testimony that John is speaking of. There are several things happening in this passage. As we've taught through the book of 1 John, I know you remember I've talked about many of the times that John is referring to some false teachers that were present at the time he wrote this book. And he refutes those false teachers, those false teachers that we now call Gnostics, taught falsely about the nature of Jesus Christ, that he was not always fully God and fully man. The Gnostics taught that all flesh was evil and all spirit was good. And so Christ could not be both all spirit and all flesh for his entire life. What they taught was that at Christ's baptism, when the spirit descended on him, that's when the Christ merged with the body of Jesus the man, and then sometime before he went to the cross, that spirit departed from Jesus the man so that only the man Jesus hung on the cross. But you see, we know from Scripture that that can't be true because Jesus had to be God himself sacrificing on our behalf to have lived a perfect life, and scripture tells us that Jesus could have called angels to take him down from the cross had he so chosen. Only God had that power. 
So what this passage is saying is that the blood and the water refute because he says not just the water at baptism was Christ present, but at the crucifixion, at, during the blood also, was Jesus fully God. But at Jesus' baptism, we see th- all three of these elements present, the water of baptism, And when John said, upon recognizing Jesus, Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was proclaiming the Lamb of God, which understood by everyone meant a lamb to be slaughtered and sacrificed to take away the sins. So the blood is present And the Spirit descended on Christ at his baptism. All three were present. It was the same Jesus at his baptism that it was that hung on the cross. And the verbal declaration of God the Father at Christ's baptism, where it says that a voice from heaven declared, You are my Son, in whom I am well pleased, was further evidence that God the Father was proclaiming the testimony that John is repeating that Jesus is his son, that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. But John was not only talking to false teachers and trying to refute their teaching, he was also talking to many believers, believers who some of which had been raised Jewish and were very familiar with the Old Testament. They would have been very familiar with the process that God laid out in Exodus chapter 9 and Leviticus chapter 8, which described the process for consecrating priests. And priests in the Old Testament were a foreshadowing of Christ. John talked in the first chapter of 1 John about how Christ is our great high priest who's now seated at the right hand of God the Father and he is advocating on our behalf to the Father. So in this record, in these instructions that God gave in the Old Testament of how a priest would be consecrated, There are three elements. Water for a ceremonial cleansing, a blood sacrifice, and the third was they were anointed by oil. An anointing with oil in scripture is representative of the Holy Spirit. So again, those three elements would have been familiar to Christians who had been raised Jewish, who were familiar with that process of consecrating a priest. This is another way that God the Father is testifying through the water, through the blood, and through the Spirit that Jesus Christ is his Son. The third element of the Holy Spirit 
all Christians in the first century after the day of Pentecost no doubt were aware of what happened on that day. We know from the book of Acts that the long-promised Holy Spirit that Jesus had spoken of, the Helper, arrived. And the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and there were miracles and there were thousands who were coming to Christ as a result of that Holy Spirit indwelling believers as Christ had promised. All first century Christians after Pentecost would have been quickly aware of that spirit within us. This is further testimony that God is saying here, Christ is who he says he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, and our Savior. So it's that aspect of the message that I believe is most important in John's point here. And it's this testimony that you and I must now put on trial in our own lives and ask ourselves the question, is there evidence of the water, the blood, and the spirit in our own lives? Verse 10 says this, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. This should be part of every believer, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We've talked about that in the past. That assurance comes when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer at the moment you choose to follow Christ and you believe on him. Does the Holy Spirit assure you of righteousness before a holy God? Do you believe that your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus? And are you free from guilt and shame? Of sins past, present, and future? If we, as believers, can't say yes to these questions, John tells us in this passage that we are not believing God and we're calling him a liar. Verse 11 and 12 go on to say, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's only one way. So Christian, if you know Jesus, and if you have surrendered all of your life to him, but you struggle with believing what he says... Don't ignore that. I would urge you today to talk to someone that you know is experiencing the testimony that God has given, that Jesus is in their life, the testimony of the cleansing 
the testimony of the blood and the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, and the presence of his Holy Spirit. Find someone who's experiencing that. Share with them your struggle. Ask them to pray with you. Pray and ask God to use the Holy Spirit to help you in your unbelief. And if you need help with that, you let me know. If you're not a Christian, and you've recognized today that you've not experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, that you have not been cleansed, that you have not been forgiven, that your sins have not been paid for, that you still owe that debt, then I encourage you to simply pray to Jesus today. Confess your belief in him. Ask for forgiveness and receive the gift of a relationship through Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray in just a minute as we go to our time of the Lord's table. And during that prayer, I'm going to give you time that if there's any business you need to conduct with Christ, that you take care of it today. Don't delay. As we prepare for the Lord's table, as always, this is the Lord's table, not a table of this church. And all believers in Christ are welcome to participate. But as always, Paul warns us, as we do, we need to examine our hearts. And we need to make sure that we don't have any unresolved business with Christ or with others that we need to take care of before taking communion. After the prayer, I'm going to ask Dave Kohler to come down and help me distribute the elements here. There are elements downstairs for those of you who are downstairs. Feel free at that time to come down and receive the elements. Make sure you grab two of the cups with both the bread and the, wa the juice. Take them back to your seat and hold them so that we can all partake together at the end. Will you now pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for not asking us to believe with a blind faith, but for giving us evidence and testimony that demonstrate that Jesus is who he says he was. Father, thank you for the confirmation in believers that when we experience the benefits of that relationship, the forgiveness, the cleansing, and the power of your spirit in our lives that you continue to testify to our hearts and our spirit your presence and your work in us and father right now if there's anyone who lacks that in their life who's here and desires to know you personally i pray lord that you would give their heart courage now to come before you and confess their sins.
to confess belief in Jesus as our Savior and Messiah. To surrender their life to you and to ask that you become Lord and leader of their life through your Holy Spirit. Lord, for believers, I pray if there's anything in our hearts that you reflect it now to us, that we can address and pray and resolve those things with you before coming to your table. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your son. And thank you, Jesus, for being willing to voluntarily endure the complete human death in a human body involving the torment and suffering of the cross. That you took our sins upon you And we recognize that as we remember what you've done, as we come to your table now, praising and giving you thanks for calling us into a relationship with you, for saving us from our sins. We ask that your spirit would powerfully be present in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.